Hey friends, and welcome to this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. This is your host, Ashley Stahl. I'm a counterterrorism professional turned career coach, speaker, and Forbes blogger, and I created the U-Turn Podcast because, let's face it, every now and again, we realize that we're living life on autopilot, and it's time to wake up and make that U-Turn in your life. So prepare to go deep with some of the most transformational people I know, here to help you grow and upgrade your mindset, whether it's in work or love. In the meantime, we've opened up access to three free e-courses on uturnpodcast.com. So head on over there if you want to land a new job you love, find your purpose, or launch your dream business. All of these courses are totally free. All you got to do is head on over to uturnpodcast.com. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com. Now let's get started with this week's guest. thing going into your marriage is it can't all be flowers and cake and a white dress and and all that excitement. There should be, in honoring your relationship and honoring your future together, there need to be these other conversations about what life after the big party looks like. Hey U-Turners, it's Ash here, and we are doing things differently in the love category this week, talking about a topic that is a bit taboo, and I think all the more important because of it, which is prenups. And I thought it would be incredible to bring Susan Guthrie on. She has a podcast. She is a lawyer, an expert on divorce and family law, and just so much to offer to this conversation. So I wanted to ask her a lot of questions about what's a prenup, and do you even need one? So before I go into all of the goods, Susan, thank you so much for making the time to be here with me. Oh, Ashley, thank you so much for having me. I I so appreciate this opportunity. Yeah. I mean, you are an expert on a topic that I think is so confusing for a lot of people. And I think it, the word prenup becomes this like sheer of darkness on a lot of pending marriages. So I'm excited to maybe shed some light on it where it's due and also kind of expose where maybe it's not so great. So this is awesome. Yeah, it's a great topic. And honestly, one that, you know, sort of gets, you know, pushed under the the rug and people don't want to talk about it until they wish they had. So I think it's a great idea to bring this information to everyone um, at a time when they can think about it and digest it. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of want to just get your feedback on the current state of relationships and, you know, marriages, like cohabitation, domestic partnerships, kids out of wedlock. Like, can you kind of paint a picture of the landscape and just your your opinion on what are the pluses or minuses of it right now? Yeah, it's definitely a changing landscape. And I think that's a great place to start because, you know, statistics do show that, younger generations and the trend today is that marriage isn't happening as often. More and more people are choosing to either cohabit or live together like you're talking about or and are having children but not not in a married uh, relationship. They're having them in obviously committed relationships and not th- that as well. But the you know statistics say that the marriage rate is going down drastically. Now that's had the effect of also lowering the divorce rate. So everybody thinks that's a positive, but there's a lot of complications that can arise out of, you know, the breakup of an unmarried relationship when there are children, even when there aren't. Um, And, you know, these days, so many um, people are now, you know, waiting longer also to get married. And that means that by the time they get married, Often both parties, instead of being, you know, right out of high school or college, like 20, 30 years ago when I first started practicing, people are getting married in their 30s these days. They have assets, they have careers, they have, you know, things to protect. And so prenups are definitely on the upswing. Interesting. Okay. And, you know, there's so many upsides of a prenup that I learned about because a lot of my listeners, they know that I'd called off my wedding four years ago to a really great guy who just wasn't the right person for me. And I had to learn a little bit about 
prenups as the entrepreneur, I was in an upswing of my business and I'd worked really hard to create it. But what was behind my, my desire for, and I didn't necessarily have a desire for a prenup, but my curiosity was, I think, just knowing that I wasn't with the right person because now that I'm in the right relationship, I don't want a prenup at all. Um, but maybe that will change after this episode. (laughs) So, (laughs) so You know, I would love to just, there were some things that I learned about prenups that are really um, honoring and um, meaningful and positive was how I kind of received them, especially between an entrepreneur, at least, and someone else. Like, uh, for example, and you can correct me on this, I learned that if my business goes down or if I get sued or if there's some sort of huge issue and my partner and I have a prenup, he does not go down with me. But if we don't have a prenup, he possibly would go down with me in the lawsuit, in the drama of whatever it is. Is that true? It can be. So some of that, you know, is is dependent upon the state in which you live, because each state does have different laws around what obligations are placed upon married couples. So what many people don't understand, I think, is that when you get married, you create a new legal I'm going to call it an entity. You now have Married Couple Inc. And the minute you become legally married, you both get certain rights and obligations to each other, but also perhaps to the world at large because you're married, because you've entered that status. I always use the example because most states have this that a spouse can be held responsible for the medical expenses of the other spouse. Mm. So for, you know, and, and that's purely just because the parties are married, the people are married. So if one of the people goes into the hospital, racks up a huge bill, they have no assets in their name, that means the hospital could, in those states that allow that third party access, could go after the spouse for the payment of those bills because they're married. So that's one simple example. Um, but once you've created that joint entity, that that familial ink, I you know, you're you're an incorporation, you're not incorporated, but you are yeah. a joint venture now legally. Um, so yes, you're right. You know, if you had your business and there the in some way the your business was tied into that marital estate, then the entire marital estate, including your husband's assets um, or your spouse's assets, would be possibly at risk. Mm, Okay. So when you look at a prenup, one of the things that I heard from a lot of family lawyers at the time I was looking into this was... And it's so funny, as I'm saying, I was looking into this, I almost felt like a judgment on myself, like, um, who am I to be looking into a prenup? Um, It doesn't, it means that I'm not a good partner or something. What are some of the beautiful things that you found about a prenup? Because I, the, the understanding I had was that it actually calls forward a lot of conversations about life and how, th- like, for example, if somebody's on life support, like what people desire for themselves that maybe you wouldn't have had until there was a situation at hand. So what are some things that when you kind of zoom out and look at a prenup, you think this is great? And also, is it too late to get one? I mean, can you do a post-nup, like get a, a prenup after you get married? Like, what's the thought on that? Yeah, well, absolutely. And that's exactly what we call it, a post-nup or a post-nuptial agreement. So, yeah, I mean, so a prenuptial agreement, so an agreement where two parties are contemplating marriage, that's what the, the legal phrase that we use. That can be a very powerful motivator for a couple to sit down and have what I always think of as really some imperative conversations leading into the creation of this marital relationship. You know, I've been a divorce professional, a divorce attorney for 30 years, and I am constantly surprised when I meet with clients to find out that before they got married, the two of them had never discussed finances. They had never discussed spending versus saving. They had never discussed how they envisioned raising a family. They just got married and thought it was all going to work out. Mm. And then lo and behold, since they're in my office, it didn't. Mm. And, you know, a lot of the timing, especially finances, uh, you know, I cannot underestimate differing financial styles where you have a spender and a saver is the most common that can put such a strain on a relationship 
and with no boundaries around it, with no discussion around it, it just is something that is corrosive very often in a relationship. So I would say one initially one of the biggest benefits of a prenuptial agreement is that it requires discussions around all of these things. That you have to at least think about how you're going to handle money. You have to disclose to each other. It's an, it's a required element of a prenuptial agreement, I believe in every state, that each party, each person entering into the agreement discloses to the other one all of their assets, all of their liabilities, all of their income. Not saying that you have to then make those things shared, but you have to let the other person know about it. Yeah. And then the discussion goes further into how you're going to handle those things in the event of the death of one of you or, you know, the dissolution of that relationship if the marriage does not work out. So, you know, and that's another thing to point out. Um, you alluded to it earlier. A prenuptial agreement doesn't just cover what happens in the event of a divorce. It can also cover how you're going to conduct your lives in certain ways, financially or otherwise, during the marriage. What elements of your asset picture will become part of the marital estate and which ones will not? Um, so it allows for it, it allows you to discuss what might happen if one of you, say, were to stay home with children and raise them rather than continue a career. Um, so there's a lot that you can talk about that really, I would say, as a divorce professional, you should talk about. It should be required discussion before you enter into such a serious relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a legal entity. You know, I can't help but ask, and I'm not sure if it's to calm my own anxiety, the anxiety of my listeners, or just get your opinion, but I, I sense that most relationships tend to have a spender and a saver. I usually don't see two savers together. No. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And, and I, I love that you're laughing as someone who is a divorce attorney, you've seen all of it. So um, what ho words of hope or words of caution do you have? Because I am in the right relationship that I want to get married at some point to him. And he's a saver. He is so responsible. And it's actually really healing for me to be around. And I've been working on my financial responsibility after a lot of business debt that I took on and cleared slowly but surely. And I'm kind of, after clearing all of this business debt that I had, stepping into my own adult financially responsible self, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's kind of um, intimidating, I think, when I'm with somebody who is such a saver and it's so natural for him, when for me, I'm kind of a spending romantic where I'm like, oh, fuck it. Let's have a great time, you know? <laughs> it will take care of itself. Money yeah. will appear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I, and I, ironically, I'm good at making money, um, but he's better at keeping it. So can you offer some insight when you have probably been exposed to some of these dynamics as it relates to prenups and financial conversations? And even anyone who's listening right now who's already married, and maybe they didn't have these conversations. I, I think it's kind of intimidating when people say, talk about money. It's like, is that a 10 minute conversation? Is that like a two day, like, let's go to the bank and look at our accounts conversation? Like, what does it really mean to talk about money together as you're entering into marriage or as you're married and wanting to recalibrate or get a postnuptial agreement? Yeah, I think that great, great question, because too many people do not do this either before the, the, you know, marriage or even during it when financial issues start to arise and they realize they have differing financial styles. So I love that you're talking about both before and after marriage that you can get the sort of the train back on the track. And I think it all comes down to, as so many things do, communicating about these issues. And so one thing I would just say, you know, you said to calm your fears, the fact that you know that you're your boyfriend or the person you're involved with is is um, a saver and that you have spending tendencies or that you you know have a differing attitude toward finances you've already taken that first step that's actually very very positive that you know that and that you're willing to be open-minded to talking about it with them I think the thing is is that you need to then set the platform to sit down and have that conversation and whether that's a 10 minute, conversation or a three-day conversation really depends on the level of 
you know, difference or disparity between uh, the two styles or the two, you know, financial pictures that we're dealing with. But there's always that opportunity to discuss those differences and come to agreements. So it's not that either one of you has to completely convert to the other person's viewpoint. Um, and that's what I think make, is one of the things that makes it an c- uncomfortable discussion is there's this assumption that you would have to become a complete saver and could never spend money again, or, you know, he's going to be upset anytime you do spend money. But what you can do is have the conversations around perhaps I've had couples, um, uh, you know, I'm thinking through some examples. I had one couple that just decided that one of the parties who liked to spend money or, or had a looser um, concept of, of money, that they would have a certain amount of discretionary spending that they could do by agreement without having to consult the other one. But there was a firm line that if they were either going to buy something or do something that was a certain amount of money or they went over whatever that monthly allotment was, it would have to be agreed, discussed and agreed upon. And that reduced the conflict because what you're always, you know, what happens that I see, and again, I'm a divorce attorney, so I'm not seeing happily married couples usually, uh, but I do see happily engaged couples. But, you know, what usually happens is people don't talk about it. It festers. One, the person who's the saver is fuming that the other one's spending and the spender is willy nilly going off and spending, but it almost, they know the other party's frustrated and it just continues to build on itself. Whereas if you set some boundaries, if you set some parameters that are agreed upon and just talk about it, all of the future conflict can usually be avoided. Mm -hmm. So even if your dynamic is that you are frustrated with your spouse because you are married and they, you don't agree with their financial style, there's nothing, there's only good in sitting down and, and saying, look, this is an area of conflict that we have, or this is an area where we are not on the same page. Let's try to craft some understanding around that this mm-hmm. so that you have that breathing room. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I, I can't help but kind of think, you know, in my partnership, it's like there's sometimes where he is going to be feeling constrained to me, like right. uptight about it. And then there's going to be, and I have to sit in that discomfort of, you know what, I accept that I, I chose somebody who is more tight with their spending than me. And there's going to yep. be times where he feels like I'm just like a total wild card. But I do think there's that middle ground that you talked about. And we already did talk about having kind of like a fun budget where he's – because I said to him, I'm like, look, <laughs> I have fun. And and if there's anything I can impart to the listeners that I've learned in recent months about this, it's from a friend who's a therapist. And we had a conversation, and it never left me. She said really what it comes down to in life is asking what is your vision and where are you choosing from today? And what I was thinking about is he and I have a very similar vision. So about like what kind of home we want or where we want to live, stuff like that. But where we choose from is different when it comes to money. I make a yes or no choice from fun. I'm choosing from emotion. Like, does it feel fun? He's Uh choosing from financial responsibility. He's choosing from restraint or from uh, money. Like, does it seem like a good financial decision? Two very different places to be choosing from. Um, and so I've learned a lot from him just saying, oh, maybe I want to choose from financial responsibility today, you know? Um, yeah. But what are you seeing in your office as it relates to couples who can't seem to move past this disagreement with money? Um, what are you noticing about whether it's prenups? And because I know that there's a lot of, you know, you had mentioned the person who wants to raise kids and give up their career. Um, I've seen a lot of one-sided prenups and weddings, you know, where the guy's like, yeah, I would love for you to um, step out of your career and raise my kids. But if this doesn't work out, you have X amount of money and it's not enough for them to sustain themselves. And it doesn't make it make sense for them to give up their career and maybe it will end the wedding, you know? Um, But I would love to just learn where do you see people work it out with money and where do you see that the money caused the end of the relationship? And can you just kind of educate us on what you're noticing about that? Well, so I would say that it is really in those cases where we have the discrepancy. And you're right, by the way, 
almost every couple has some level of financial discrepancy on, on how they deal with it. It's very rare that you find a couple where they're exactly on the same page with how to handle finances. So it's not that it's an unusual thing that people have that discrepancy, but the reason why they end up in my office is because they just don't do anything about it. Mm. They let it go on and that's, they don't talk about it. One party just continues to spend or to, to not, you know, honor what the other party feels is important. And the one who feels that saving is important gets angrier and angrier and the divide grows wider and wider and wider. And so that's where, you know, as with many reasons why people end up in my office, it's where people start treating things as a partnership. And in that instance, right, one person's spending because that's what they want to do. And the other party is angry about it because they want it all to be saved. And that's what they want to do. And it's really finding the need to find a middle ground where you both can exist and, and live together in that. Or you really are talking about, I mean, we talk about in the world of divorce, irreconcilable differences. Yeah. Like where do you see it going off the path? It's just that they never talked about it and said, Hey, clearly there's an issue because talking about it usually works, but it doesn't always like, do you see some couples where it's like, or, or a lot of couples, like an unusual amount of couples where it was an issue from the start and it was never going to be solved. Like, do you believe these things are solvable between two couples? I believe they're solvable if people are willing to work on it and make compromises, because that's the only way you're going to come to an agreement. So the spender in the duo is going to have to give way on some spending, or I'm sorry, on some, you know, they're going to have to curtail their unfettered shopping or whatever that might be, the shoe habit or the vacations or that. That's going to have to have to happen. They're going to have to be agreed upon limits or something like that. But the saver is also going to have to loosen their purse string and and allow for some level of discomfort on the saving side, or there's no middle ground. And you can't have a successful relationship forever, Mm -hmm. at least in my experience, where you have those two polar opposites. Mm -hmm. Because eventually the resentment builds, the anger builds, and it it eventually will dry. Or the parties just, you know, I, I have seen certainly those cases where it's not that it drives them to a divorce, but it may drive them to living pretty much just separate lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I see married couples and I do, have done post-nups for couples basically that just outline how they're going to live their life going forward, but it's not together. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, basically doing a divorce all but the legal process. So it's really imperative that in order to, before you get to the high level of conflict, and that's, you know, once you're in that high level of conflict, that's at a a time when it's almost impossible to talk about these things. And that's divorce, right? That's what I deal with every day. When people are that upset and angry or hurt or whatever the, the feelings are during divorce, it ramps up all that emotion and people are just not reasonable. They're not willing to compromise. And and that's what makes divorce so difficult. The Mm -hmm. same thing with these conversations. If you leave it until a time where it's been this huge issue between the two of you and it's either been undiscussed or just a constant running argument with no movement toward compromise or discussing it in a way that you can come to agreements, you're just going to continue to widen that divide. Yes. And a couple of things are coming up for me as I'm listening to you. Number one is curiosity because we kind of talked about the upsides of a prenup, like kind of agreeing on medical things, like having that separation could support somebody with medical bills or with an entrepreneur who has a business that has an issue. Are there any sunny things about prenups before we get into the downsides? And can you um, share if there's any legal around partners who cohabitate living together? Because I think a lot of people listening live together with somebody and they don't know maybe that there's something legal around that. Right. And there's those are, um, you know, two really fast growing areas of law in the family law arena because of the trend toward cohabitation versus marriage these days. So, you know, there's beyond the the requirement that the parties start having, you know, conversations around 
issues that are so important and central to having a successful relationship needed to, to create a prenup. There's a lot that can be discussed and understood in the realm of creating that prenup. Again, you can talk about what's going to happen in the event of a divorce or dissolution, but you can also talk about what would happen if one of you passes away, one of you becomes disabled. You can create all different kinds of agreements in there that will help you to conduct your partnership, your marriage, your relationship as you go forward into that marriage. And you'll have talked about these things and again, set up those parameters to make you know, to work with an understanding of what works for both of you. A lot of times people don't even know what they want. And and that's the other thing here. It, out of, they just want to be happy. I just want to be with him. I just want to be with her. I want to be happy. But that's a very nebulous concept. What do you really want? Do you want 12 kids? Do you want to live in as many cities and travel as much as possible? Do you want a house in the suburbs or to live in a high rise in a city? You know, there's so many things. And I honestly, people do not talk about a lot of this before they get married. Or they're they're also in hope addiction, you know, where they're just hoping that the fantasy they have matches what the other person would be willing to do without really agreeing on it. They just have an expectation and not an agreement. Yeah, a lot of the time people are shocked when the other party doesn't want to do whatever it is that they're thinking about. But if they ever stopped and looked or talked about it, they'd have a good idea that, you know, they had a differing idea on this. I did it myself. I got married at 30 for the first time. And it was one of those things where, and I was already a divorce attorney. I had been a divorce attorney for five years at that point. And, you know, I think I just turned 30 and looked over next to me and said, oh, you must be who I was intended to marry because I'm 30 and there you are. Mm -hmm. And so I did and pretty quickly figured out that was a mistake. Um, And I did none of the things that I'm talking about. So if nothing else in what I'm saying, I hope people understand that, you know, this is, this is a culmination of 30 years of working with people and seeing what people have gone through and the mistakes that they've made. And the number one, you know, thing going into your marriage is there, there has to be, it can't all be flowers and cake and a white dress and and all that excitement. There should be for, for, in honoring your relationship and honoring your future together, there need to be these other conversations about what life after the big party looks like. Hey, U-Turners, so sorry for the quick interruption, but I want to make sure you know that this episode has been brought to you by the Job Offer Academy, our e-course to help you land a new job you love. So if you're sick of applying for jobs and never hearing back, and you'd like to try a free version of our job hunting course, just head on over to U-TurnPodcast.com slash job offer. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com slash job offer. Now let's get back to this week's episode. And I also just want to shed light for anybody listening as they were talking about the spender versus the saver. I think spending, it can tip into an unhealthy, going from an unhealthy habit to an addictive habit. And a lot of people have spending problems in the same way that drug addicts have drug problems. Or, And I think that there's a lot of things in society, Susan, that I notice are kind of hidden through social norms. For example, workaholism. It's like people are celebrated for working hard. Sex addiction. It's like um, they they don't they can just say that they're very sexual or shopping addiction. They could just say they like to spend. You know, so we have another episode with Anna David on the podcast about addiction and when you can kind of tell that maybe some of your habits are actually quite addictive and something to look at for your mental health. So because I was listening to you say you could compromise, and I'm guessing right now some people are like that sounds like almost impossible to compromise, and that could just be that they have maybe an addictive habit. Can, can you tell me a little bit about living together? Like, let's say there's a couple like John and Sally that are like, things are going so well, like eight months in <clears throat> or six months in. And they're like, let's get a place together. Is there a legal that happens around that or how it's recognized right away? Or what's the legality of that? 
So it does, again, depend on the state in which, you know, the couple resides, because each state does have differing laws around cohabitation and really more common law marriage. That's what the, the, you know, the legal phrase that people would be looking at. But what most people should understand is holding yourselves out as a couple together, getting a house together, getting an apartment together, doing any of those things, that does not create any legal relationship. It doesn't create any legal obligations to each other unless you've entered into some sort of written agreement that it does. But it also does not create any obligations to each other. So the number one way where that often comes up after the relationship you know, ends um, is people will be looking for support. Um, I have many, many cases where a couple will get together, they move in together, they have children, someone stays home with those children, gives up a career, and then when they split up, they're utterly shocked and appalled to find out that, yes, they might receive child support if the children are residing with them, but alimony or marital spousal support or whatever we might call it in that state, that is not going to happen. There is no obligation on the part of that other party. Likewise, other than those assets that perhaps you co-join, you know, co-own jointly. So the same, you know, one of you bought the house that you both have been living in. It's very unlikely that the party who did not contribute to that and is not on title when an unmarried couple is going to have any legal rights to that property. Yeah. So you leave yourself vulnerable in that situation, if you just jump into it, again, without any agreements, I mean, the lawyer in me would say the better way to do that and the responsible way to do it and the way to have a successful relationship would be to have what we call a cohabitation agreement. Yeah, uh, Those have become much more popular in recent years, and they really define by contract. I mean, it's really a contract between the two parties what the rights and obligations of the parties to that contract will have under certain circumstances. Mm. If there are children, if there's a breakup, if they buy assets together, if they get a pet together, I can't tell you how many. Talk to me about that. That's interesting. Oh yeah. I mean, pets are, it's a huge issue at the time of the breakup of a couple who have not been married. And, you know, I, I have I just had this case last year where a young man and his girlfriend were living together. He bought a dog. It was his dog. She moved in. And when she moved out a few months later, she took the dog with her. And the legal fight around that, I can't begin to tell you how much money, time, effort, et cetera, that cost, because basically for an unmarried couple in in all states, Ownership of a dog is like ownership of a chair or ownership of a pet. It's really who the pet belongs to is who purchased it. It's it's a piece of property. Now, some states are changing that law for married couples, and it uh, the pet can now be considered, say, in California. I know they've passed the law in a few other states where the pet can now be considered as something that a judge has discretion to say the pet's going to live because it's better for the pet to live with party A instead of party B, but party B has visitation rights or something like that. But often we will put, when I'm doing a cohabitation agreement for a couple, I will suggest putting a clause in there, even if they don't have a pet now, I suggest putting a clause in there about the pet. Because remember, pets, I mean, I'm I'm sitting here right now with my two dogs. Um, They are members of my family. There are pluses that come with a pet, love, affection, they're wonderful, but pets can be extremely expensive as well. So the agreement is going to be around the pet, where the pet will live, who the pet would go with, who, you know, what rights the other one might have to see the pet, but also how are you going to share the expenses of a pet? Hmm. Even the day-to-day grooming, food, vaccinations, veterinary bills um, can add up to thousands of dollars a year. 
totally. the dog walker. So those are all things that, you know, a professional, a family law attorney, or, you know, I usually work through these things these days with people in mediation. Um, and a lot of people don't even know that you can sit with a mediator to work out your prenup. You can sit with a mediator to work out your cohabitation agreements, your parenting agreement, if you are unmarried parents. Um, you do not have to go to lawyers and create an adversarial relationship in fighting these things out, you can sit down like grownups with a, you know, a facilitator, a trained mediator to help you have the conversation around what the issues are, let you know what the law says and what issues you should probably think about, like pet expenses or something like that, and then help you have what can sometimes be difficult conversations around that so that you can come to the agreements. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so this has just been so insightful. I want to just zoom out before we finish with the downsides of the prenup and ask you kind of point blank. You see a lot of people get divorced. What do you really feel you're seeing as a trend or something that people could have identified way earlier on and they didn't want to see? You know, I think it comes down to people thinking that things are going to change when they get married. And in fact, you know, I I wrote down when you were talking earlier about addictions, you know, someone's a workaholic, someone has sex addiction, shopping addiction, whatever that might be. I, I see that trend, obviously, in my office all the time, because people in those situations often get divorced. Those are the behaviors that will lead to a marriage breaking down. But the thing is that those you know, workaholics, guess what happens when their relationship isn't going well? They go to work more to get mm-hmm. out of the house. Sex addicts, that, you know, that addiction is something that you know, people have it, it you, regardless of whether they have a happy relationship or an unhappy relationship. But shopping addiction, all of these things are actually exacerbated in the in a situation where a relationship is not going well. And it's a sadly a you know a downward spiral because the more the person is exhibiting their addictive behaviors the more the relationship fails and the more the relationship fails the more they go out and and seek oblivion in their own way through whatever their particular addiction might be. Um, You know, I had a case where a woman was a a shopper and as the marriage started to unravel, this was back years ago when like home shopping network and those things were the, we didn't have the internet the same way. But at the time of the divorce, they had this huge 10,000 square foot home. And when you went into it, it looked like a hoarder's home because there were so many boxes because she spent her entire day sitting in front of the television, making telephone calls and buying things. Most of those boxes were not even opened. Mm. We had to like pay someone to go through that house and do an inventory of what was in there. Most of their day was spent opening. I mean, there were thousands and thousands of boxes because she was unhappy. Shopping filled that addiction, you know, that, that emptiness for a period of time. So, you know, and that was a really, that went on for years because that couple never talked about it. I mean, all of these things stem from, and, and the number one reason why I see, I get asked all the time, why do people get divorced? You know, there are myriad, I, I, there are thousands and thousands of reasons, but they really all come down to communication and not acting as a partnership, mm. um, not being able to sit down and craft something that is acceptable to enough to both of them to, to help them stay in that relationship. Mm -hmm. And so they just move further and further apart. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when you think about like couples that you see, you know, like I know John, you know, Gottman from the Gottman Institute, there's like a statistically significant uh, ability that he has to predict whether a couple's going to get divorced. If you're sitting down at a table of multiple couples, what are some things that you're kind of noticing that you think, oh, this, this is not going to be okay on their long-term journey? So it's, it's usually these things around sort of what you said earlier, um, especially when I'm dealing with prenups, when, you know, I'm crafting a prenup with a couple in a mediation and one of the parties walks in with very hard lines around, um, you know, I'm more than happy to share with you while we're married, but Hey, if this doesn't work out, I, I basically want you out the door. And, you know, we'll ask for certain provisions or have certain expectations about the end of that relationship that are, are so unfair or so 
Um, you know, you mentioned your friend who, you know, wanted to leave, uh, would have left her employment and her career yeah. to stay home with her children. She called That's off actually, her wedding. Yeah, I mean, I've had that number of times um, because for whatever reason, the other party does not put value on that in the relationship. And I think that says something that it's very, you know, appropriate that your friends caught that, that they were so far apart. There are certain deal breakers or there should be, if it is that important to you to have children and to be able to stay home with them, the law provides certain provisions that protect you. If you choose to do that, I mean, they're not perfect. Don't, don't get me wrong, but at least under the general laws of most States, if you leave your job, you stay home with children or for whatever reason you, because of the marriage, do not continue your career or employment, you're going to receive some sort of alimony or spousal support to help you. I always call it the runway to getting back to Mm self-supporting, but if your spouse wants you to, or your intended, your fiance, your the person you're going to marry, wants you to enter into a marriage that basically says, yeah, you can do that. Give everything up. Be the one who disadvantages them yourself in our relationship to do something that benefits our family. And then I'm not willing to consider that if this relationship doesn't work out. I think that says a lot about that relationship. Mm. Um, And I have seen that repeatedly. I have had, I just had it uh, a couple of months ago. uh, One of my former divorce clients was about to get remarried and pretty much at the door of the, you know, chapel uh, that, that broke down over his unwillingness. This was my client and I tried to talk to him, but he was unwilling to put provisions in that, that, you know, I'm just going to say the word, that were fair. Yeah. He, he had been burned in his first divorce and by gosh, it wasn't going to happen to him again, mm-hmm. but he took that so far, mm-hmm. you know, and the other thing I do want your listeners to know, cause this is the number one mistake I see people make with prenups. They wait to bring the topic up until just before the wedding. And that by far is for a myriad of reasons that by far is the biggest mistake. As we've just spent all this time talking about, these are difficult conversations you need to have around a prenup. You need to give yourself and your relationship time to have those conversations, time to work through it. And when wedding invitations have gone out, when the dress is hanging on the back of a door and the gifts have been coming in for a couple of months, that is not the right time to suddenly slap all of this or to put a, you know, 50 page agreement on the table and say, oh, my parents want you to sign this or Mm -hmm. my lawyer says you need to sign this. But people do it all the time. Mm, All the time. One of my closest friends had that happen just three months before the wedding, 600 people. And he sent her a very one-sided prenup out of completely nowhere, you know, and it, it was just such a shock to her system, and um, it ended up translating until the end. And this actually segues perfectly into one of my final topics that I just want to cover for everybody listening, because maybe some people are listening now, and they're like, we don't have a prenup, but it feels good to do a postnup or whatever. There's the downsides of the prenup, so you know, that kind of thing where it's one-sided or maybe there's the emotional downside of you're in a marriage where the prenup has created a level of emotional separation. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I know of a couple where um, the guy makes a lot of money and the woman is hustling really hard in her business as they're preparing to have kids because she's so afraid that if for whatever reason their marriage doesn't work out, she needs to be prepared for that. She wants to be able to have, so it's almost like um, leaking into their marriage, you know, in an everyday basis, the prenup that is so one-sided. But Uh, What are some sticky points or even downsides of a prenup? Because I know that just from my own experience listening to friends talk about it, there is um, community property is a sticky point. Spousal support is a sticky point. Can you kind of talk about these little pieces that are things for people to consider? Yeah. So, you know, the first thing is that people need to understand exactly what a prenup is. And so a prenup is an agreement between the two parties who are contemplating marriage. It doesn't take effect until the marriage actually happens. But what it does is sets out each side's rights and responsibilities to each other 
as they vary from what the law provides. So the very first thing that everyone needs to understand is if you don't have a prenup, every state has laws that apply. We've talked about them at the beginning that apply. Things like alimony, child support, that, that how your property is going to be divided, whether you're in a community property state like California where I practice or an equitable distribution state like Connecticut where I practice. You know, there are laws that are going to pretty much define or at least give structure to how your marital estate and your children and all that is going to get divided up. Mm -hmm. What the prenup is doing, at least insofar as it applies to divorce or the dissolution of that relationship, is it it's explaining how you're going to vary from that. So as your example of spousal support, very commonly people will want, you know, the law will provide that one of the parties under those cer certain circumstances is entitled to it. But one of the other, you know, the other side will say, I don't want to pay spousal support. I'm not paying it. I'm never going to pay it. And I won't enter into a marriage that makes me pay it. Mm -hmm. And so, I, and I see people sign that agreement all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing that people don't realize when they're negotiating their prenup is they are negotiating away from what the law would have given them. So the very first thing they need to understand is what is the law in their state and what would they be entitled to? And then they need to look at whether what is being proposed is fair or not, because very often, especially in those cases where somebody's going to give up a career um, and stay home and, and raise a family or do whatever that might be, or just or even just take hits to your career, right? I mean, you may have a spouse whose career requires relocating. Yeah. And that may make it very difficult for your career to blossom. Mm -hmm. You know, so how, and, and so that will affect your earning, that will affect what you amass, that will affect, you know, a myriad of things, your 401k, your this, your that. If you, if you don't negotiate how you might be compensated for that, or how you might then share in the upswing for, you know, your husband being able to move around the country, because that's what his job required, or your wife being able to do that, then you end up at the day of the divorce looking at an agreement that provides you with nothing or with whatever is, you know, was the other side was willing to do. And they're, trust me, at that point in time, they're not usually willing to vary from the terms of the prenuptial agreement. Mm -hmm. So most people, you know, the, the biggest mistake I see is people entering into it without ever really considering what they were entitled to or would have been entitled to and negotiating something that is acceptable or would be workable. Well, so then this uh, kind of brings me to a question like, you know, two, two people are getting married because they're in love. And I, I know that there's a lot of social discourse around how this is supposed to be the best time of your life or whatever it is. And these prenups can be really sticky and really painful and really divisive. And um, what is your thought on a couple? And, and I guess this is just a matter of your own opinion where it's it's one person is clearly the earner and the other person is clearly going to raise the kids. And in today's age, that could be the man or the woman. I mean, I'm seeing mm -hmm. such a rise in women who are the breadwinner, and I love that. Um, although our biology doesn't always support it, you know, as far as yes. our career and our bodies go, which is a whole other conversation that I find really fascinating. You know, because I was just thinking the other day, um, a friend of mine offers a business program that has some special um, advantages and revenue shares, and all the only the only clients that took the revenue share were women. And he has equal women and men clients. And I thought, why did all the women take the revenue share? Because they're more tired. Why are they more tired? Because their biology may not fully be. And I don't know if this is a generalization, but I do feel it's true because a lot of them want to have kids and um, they're burnt out. And I know that the male body is, is built for perhaps more pushing through or whatever have you. So what is, it's a total tangent, but what is your opinion on a couple where maybe the man is the clear earner and he doesn't want to budge on the prenup and the woman really loves him. She wants to get married, but she's totally giving up her career. Like, is there a point where you say, I don't think you should get married. And I think you need to grieve the loss of this relationship um, because you've just seen so many dark meetings in your office. Um, and there's like a statistical significance to that. Like, what is your opinion on that? Because I have seen that where a lot of girlfriends are like, fuck it. I need to sign this. I really love this human. And I'm just going to hope that things work out. It, it, you know, unfortunately, that happens all the time. And I've seen that more often than, you know, I would like to. 
in, you know, a relationship where people have gotten to the point of the door to, you know, the church or the synagogue or, or the hall where they're going to be getting married. And then it comes down to such a huge divide in their thinking. You wonder how they got there. And, and that's where, you know, as an attorney, I have given the advice to clients that they should consider whether or not this is a healthy relationship for them, because I think it is symptomatic of a bigger issue. I love that you just said that because the truth of the matter is if you have a partner that's not willing to flex on the terms of your marriage and nuptials, then what kind of relationship and influence, you know, I say this all the time to job seekers. They have a big fear of negotiating when they get an offer (laughs) And I'm like, do you want to work for a company that rescinds your offer if you try to negotiate? Like, do you want to be a part of a culture that doesn't allow you the space to negotiate? You know, because a lot of people are afraid their job offer is going to get taken away if they ask for more money, you know? Exactly. And it's the same thing with relationships. It's like, do you want that kind of inflexibility to be the foundation and first huge legal step in your marriage? Like, what a huge piece of feedback. And Um, okay. This has been hugely insightful. Do you have any closing words? And then of course I want to ask where everybody can find you. So absolutely. I would just say, you know, don't be afraid to have those difficult conversations. And if you need help to have them, find a therapist, find a, you know, a mediator, find someone to help you facilitate the conversations because, especially if you're contemplating marriage and you're, you're talking about a prenup. I mean, this is a time in life when you are trying to make agreements. And by the way, when you get married, you have to make agreements every single day. Who's going to pick up the kids? Who's going to go to the grocery store? Who's going to pay the bills? You know, those are all things every day is going to be a series of agreements. Life is that. So you need to sit down. You can't be afraid to have those conversations. And if you want the relationship to be a success, you are honoring that by actually having those, those difficult conversations. Yeah. Don't wait, you know, if you can't sit down with the person you love and are going to marry and spend the rest of your life with and try to work things out, then you're going to end up in an office like mine when they don't love you anymore and they definitely don't want to give you anything. And that's why we have judges and all the nasty things that go on in divorce. And, you know, so Remember, this is your opportunity to sit down and start your relationship, your new relationship or your new phase in your relationship off on the right foot. Don't mm-hmm. don't make a mistake because it's hard. Well, and then can I ask about that? When do you think is too soon in a relationship? Because I know a lot of friends in their 30s are like a little bit, um, not PTSD, but like they were with the wrong person. Now they're ready for the right one and they want to jump into these conversations. Do you think there's an aging period of a relationship where it's time to start having those conversations? Or what's your thought on that as we're closing out? Well, I would definitely say if you're talking about moving in together or combining assets or purchasing a house, I mean, I see people buying a house or a dog together all the time. Those are times where you absolutely need to start doing that. You do need to remember that, you know, our biology, you mentioned biology earlier. I mean, the first 18 months of a relationship, we're all a little crazy because our hormones are running that relationship more than our brain. And, you know, so having those conversations at that time, you, you at least need to be aware of it because, you know, I see far too many people who have jumped into marriage in that time frame only to, you know, I don't know, wake up <laughs> down the road and realize not only did they not have any of the important conversations, but they didn't even, you know, once all the excitement wore off and all that, they really didn't even look at the person that they were with to determine whether this was the right relationship for a lifetime relationship. Not every relationship is going to be a lifetime relationship. Mm. And so... It just, you know, our lives prove that. You you mentioned uh, almost marrying someone. I was married to someone else. Now I'm married to what I believe is my lifetime relationship. But before that, guess what? I had boyfriends and, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, relationships end. Mm-hmm. Honor that. Honor that you deserve the right person for you. And if you're afraid to have this conversation, any of these conversations with the person that you're with, that, that should tell you something. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Where can everybody find you? And is there a special, a particular state that you work in um, to support people? And talk about your podcast too. 
Oh, I'd love to. So I, my website is uh, divorceinabetterway.com. And it's, uh, I have a ton of resources on there for people who are going into relationships, who are getting divorced, just going through change and transition because divorce is one of those things. But a lot of what applies there also applies when you break up or you lose a job or someone dies. So there's a lot of resources on my website. Um, I, I am licensed to practice law in Connecticut and California, but because I mediate, I can really, I do work with couples around the world. Um, I have clients in Australia and Paris and Canada, um, and in all states of the United States, I've worked with people. The only ones I can give legal advice to are California and Connecticut residents, but, um, I, as a mediator and a, and a coach, I work with people all over and I do everything online. I have a fully online practice. So, you know, I'm, I'm able and available to work with people in that forum. And then my podcast, which is uh, just launched, um, I, I was a part of one of the creators and co-hosts of Breaking Free, a modern divorce podcast, which runs through the end of 2019. And my new podcast, Divorce and Beyond, um, is just starting and uh, can be found on all major podcast outlets. So I, I encourage everyone to go check them both out. Oh, thank you so much, Susan. This has been jam-packed with content, and I think it's going to give people a little bit more to think about when it comes to their relationship and the less pretty side of it, which is the legal side of it, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. And, and uh, you know, I always say uh, 30 years as a divorce attorney has taught me a lot. Um, there are a lot of really wonderful relationships out there. And what people can do is learn from other people's mistakes, some of which I've shared with you in this episode. So I hope it's been helpful to your listeners. Wonderful. Thanks again. Hey there, it's Ash here, and I am almost at a loss of words of what to talk about after an episode where we explored prenups. And what came up for me after this episode was just this topic of power struggles and how a prenup can be a document that is so motivated by responsibility, reality, conversation. It can also be one that's motivated by fear and separation. And um, with that, I think often can come a power struggle. And I'm really fascinated by this concept that comes from Kelsey Grant and Jamie Ray, and they have a bunch of love programs. And it's a wound mate versus a heart mate. And when they talk about a heart mate, they talk about how it's somebody that your heart really connects to. It's somebody that your heart feels like it really belongs with versus a wound mate, which is somebody who's, for lack of a better term, like brokenness matches your brokenness. And I think as humans, we're all whole and there's little areas within us that we carry little pieces of brokenness that we haven't yet healed. And sometimes somebody's wounds will match yours and you guys become this perfect little nightmare together. And <laughs> I find that these power struggles tend to happen. Um, so let me give you an example. I was in an unhealthy relationship a couple of years ago with a guy, and I've been with really nice guys, but it wasn't um, until this guy that I really learned what a toxic relationship could look like. And his uh, wounding was that he didn't matter with his family, like his dad left him, all of this different stuff, and he didn't feel like he mattered. My wounding was feeling valuable uh, when people want my time. And so what that looked like was our wounds really met each other. He wanted to feel like he mattered and he felt like he mattered when I gave him a lot of my time. So the relationship looked like me cooking for him, cleaning up after him, like doing everything for him. And that was how he felt love. And I was playing into this pattern with him. And when I couldn't make his food or I couldn't do these things, he would get upset. And in a way we were wound mates. We weren't really heart mates. Um, and I think a really powerful concept. And if you haven't listened to the episode with Tatiana Ray about how to break free, um, she talks about this idea of nest energy, which is the energy we kind of grew up around in our household. And all of us have different nest energy. And usually it's a reflection of what our parents felt like in the house. Like, did we have a house that felt like 
you know, maybe your house felt stressful. Maybe your house felt calm. Maybe your house felt worried. Like how, what was the dynamic between your parents and what kind of energy was in the home? Were you in a house that was very calm, um, very high stress? You know, how did your parents talk about your career? All of these different elements form your nest energy. And sometimes when it comes to our wounding, um, as kids, we all don't get something that we really need in our house. And we come out of that um, with wounds and with heartbreaks. And sometimes we find someone that quote unquote feels like home when really that familiarity, um, isn't always the best thing. I think that that's why sometimes you see people who are in abusive relationships, maybe their dad hit their mom or their mom hit their dad, whatever that physical violence was. And they grow up to have partners who are physically violent. It's always kind of a mystery. Like how did your dad have that? And that was so painful for you or your mom have that. And that was so painful for you. And yet you end up attracting someone who does the same thing. And it's because I believe of nest energy that they're familiar with that. And there's some sort of romance in what feels familiar, what feels like home. Um, and so my question for you is what is your wounding, um, from your nest energy? How did you grow up? What was the environment like? And where did you get your heart broken as a little kid? Uh, because I think the more you can ask yourself this question, the more you can see where your wounding is. And I think that that wounding is the core of any power struggle. So hope this is helpful for you. Um, hope you would love this episode and I can't wait to talk to you next week. Thanks again for tuning into this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. We keep really detailed show notes at uturnpodcast.com. So if our guest mentioned a book or a resource that you're interested in, you'll be able to find that there. In the meantime, if you were inspired by this episode, if it made an impact in your life, we would be so grateful if you subscribed and posted a review for us on iTunes. Rumor has down the street, the more reviews we get, the more subscribes we get, the more we can grow and get our impact out there in the world. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you at Ashley Stahl on Instagram. I'm so grateful for connecting and I look forward to next week's episode.